I know time is precious. So as a courtesy to those of you who are already familiar with Mike McCullough and his quantized inertia theory, you can skip the introduction and head on to uh, somewhere around the neighborhood. It looks like it'll be around 11 minutes or so. Actually, make that 12. That's where he and I pick it up and start discussing things. But if you're not familiar with the, with the basic ideas, you might want to sit through the rest of this. Here we go. Okay. Normally I save my begging for the end of the introduction, but I want to get it out of the way right here at the beginning because I don't want to interrupt the flow in this episode. So if you find this episode or any of the other episodes of this podcast to be of value, I am placing the beggar's bowl out here and uh, would appreciate anything you can chuck into it, whether that's like a dollar a month at patreon.com slash taijureality uh, or a one-time PayPal, hey, thanks, great job, keep doing what you're doing, but I'm not going to support you on a regular basis type of deal. You can send that to taijureality at gmail.com or any of the other various kind of worthwhile things that one can do to support the things they find of value, such as liking, subscribing, writing a review, comment, sending it to folks, whatever. I also have a Substack if you want to keep track of all the various stuff that I'm doing, and that is taijureality.substack.com. The links are in the show note description, and here we go with the episode. Assembly of Silence. Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Most of the time when I do an introduction to the show, it's, well, actually probably more freewheeling than the conversation. But in this case, I have to make an exception because when it comes to things like brain surgery and rocket science, you can't just wing it. And while we're not really going to concern ourselves with brain surgery in this episode, we are going to concern ourselves with rocket science. Or, more accurately, you could say we're going to talk about rocket science without the rocket. And so I have spent some time to prepare an explanation of the topic. And that topic is quantized inertia. And my guest is Mike McCullough, which is really quite awesome, as you will soon discover if you don't know who he is. In planning for this show, we had discussed the idea of, of my presenting the ideas as best as I could to see if I understood them, and also to kind of free us up so that during the conversation we're not just covering the basics but are more able to kind of stretch out and explore things freely. So. Here we go. I'm going to read something, so it's going to sound different than what I normally sound like, because usually I'm just kind of spieling off the top of my head, but here's what happens when I actually have to read something. Introduction to Quantized Inertia. Quantized Inertia, hereafter referred to as QI, is a rigorous mathematical theory describing a basic mechanism for cosmological physics. QI was conceived of by physicist Mike McCulloch, as an improved explanation for galactic rotations, and it succeeds at this without the need for any ad hoc devices such as dark matter. 
It derives its results entirely from visible baryonic matter, the speed of light, and the co-moving diameter of the observable universe. But that's just the beginning. QI also provides an explanation for inertial mass. It predicts the accelerated expansion of the universe. It predicts faster galactic rotations at higher redshift, and it also predicts the behavior of fast-moving wide binary stars, which is a phenomena that defies a dark matter solution. QI also suggests a technology for fuelless propulsion, a quantum-powered spaceship. This technology is presently under experimental review and has received DARPA funding. The historical context that led to QI is helpful in getting a sense of its significance. When the rotation of galaxies were first observed, they didn't fit gravitational models. These models stated that the visible mass could not hold the galaxies together at the high-velocity rotations observed. Nevertheless, galaxies were holding together quite nicely. Dark matter was thus conjured as an ad hoc mechanism to preserve the gravitational model. But no tangible evidence for dark matter exists. To the contrary, there are a number of good reasons to suspect dark matter does not exist. For one, dark matter fails at explaining the flat rotation curves of some galaxies. It's also the case that denser areas of visible galactic matter have higher accelerations than the areas thought to be occupied by dark matter, which is the opposite of what one should expect if dark matter were responsible for keeping high acceleration regions intact. Dark matter also requires an arbitrary parameter to custom fit to each observed galaxy, which means that there's no true prediction occurring within dark matter models. The model has to be tinkered with in order for it to fit the observations. And finally, dark matter is difficult to falsify, which means it's basically an untestable theory. This is something that should always be viewed with suspicion when employing the scientific method. In contrast, quantized inertia requires no arbitrary parameters at all and predicts galactic rotations beautifully. Instead of tinkering with the mass, QI shows that inertial mass is linked to acceleration. To understand this, there are two things you need to get under your belt first. The first one is the Casimir effect, and the second one is a general concept called horizons. It's worth mentioning here that quantized inertia has another fancier name, which is modified inertia by a Hubble scale Casimir effect, abbreviated as MIHSC. The Casimir effect is best described by analogy. Consider the action of oceanic waves on a boat near a harbor. The ocean contains wave energy that's roughly evenly distributed throughout. As the boat approaches the harbor, the space between the boat and harbor start to dampen the wave action, which forms a bounded region, wherein only waves smaller than the size of the space between the boat and harbor will fit. Thus, the space between the boat and harbor acts as a filter, on the aggregate wave energy, and that space has less energy than the space outside of it. As that intermediate space becomes less energetic, the net result is that the rest of the ocean wave activity pushes the boat towards the harbor. The Casimir effect is essentially the same thing, but instead of the ocean, we're talking about the quantum energy in every cubic centimeter of space. 
Free space is teeming with quantum fluctuations as particles and antiparticles spontaneously and simultaneously come into existence and then, more often than not, self-annihilate each other almost instantaneously. This is sometimes called quantum foam, quantum vacuum, or zero-point energy, or zero-point field, and can be thought of as the baseline energy within free space. Given the incomprehensible expanses of space and the rather small smatterings of ordinary baryonic matter in comparison, the quantum vacuum energy easily adds up to most of the energy in the universe. If you take two metal plates and place them very close to each other, this forms a boundary condition that dampens the quantum energy between the plates. This results in the plates being pushed towards each other by the surrounding energy of free space, just as the boat is pushed towards the harbor by the surrounding energy of the oceanic waves. Consider this in cosmological terms. The amount of space between objects is unfathomably vast, representing a staggering amount of quantum energy. When objects are in relative proximity to each other, they create a dampening effect between them, which causes the objects to move towards each other. We call this phenomena gravity. But wait, there's more. When an object accelerates, it too creates a boundary condition, which is called a horizon. This horizon forms behind the object in the direction it came from. The horizon acts as an information boundary, reducing the available energy behind the accelerating object. As it moves through space, the accelerating object causes energy to radiate. This energy is called Unruh radiation. The differential between Unruh radiation at the fore and the aft of the accelerating object is what accounts for inertial mass. QI proposes that the rate of acceleration is a factor in the amount of inertia produced by a given mass. And this is what helps to describe the rotational curves of galaxies. But wait, there's even more. There's another horizon line called the cosmic horizon or Hubble diameter. This is a boundary way out at the edge of the detectable universe beyond which no information can be gathered. This horizon sets the limit on the longest waveform possible, which somehow has a dampening effect on Unruh radiation, particularly at lowest accelerations. If I understand it correctly, and I'm not sure I do, but I'm about to find out, this is what accounts for what we normally think of when we talk about inertia, namely, the property of matter by which it continues in its existing state of rest or uniform motion in a straight line unless changed by an external force. But how can any of this be applied towards propelling a spacecraft? Imagine instead of pushing hot gases out of a rocket, you instead have a quantum energy generator. All one need do then is find a way to create a horizon in any direction and the craft will move towards that horizon. This is an incredibly brilliant, exciting, and revolutionary idea. And what I love most about it is the suggestion that it's potentially unnecessary to commit violence against matter in order to derive useful energy. The energy is all around us. All we have to do is to figure out how to properly and efficiently harness it. Who better to discuss this with but the discoverer of quantized inertia himself, physicist Mike McCulloch, who is our guest on this episode of the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Strap in for takeoff in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. 
Greetings. Can you hear me? Hello. Hi there. Yes, yes I can. Oh, wonderful. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, you're welcome. Let's see. So I guess it's bad form to start with an apology, but I'll, I'll start with a couple of very quick apologies. One of them is, of course, I'm somewhat out of my depth here. So uh, particularly when it comes to the mathematics, there's a, a limitation on what I can understand. So I apologize for that. And the second apology I would offer is uh, I uh, mentioned briefly to you that my mother is English. And so when I speak with someone who has an English accent, I have this terrible tendency to start to speak as if I had an English accent. So I will try to resist that temptation, but it has a kind of gravitational pull on me. Back. Yeah. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see whether I end up slipping into that or not. But beyond that, uh, do you have any uh, anything you'd like to mention at the top, or should we just dive right in? I guess um, I could mention my my book. Yeah, please do. Physics on the Edge. When was that uh, published? That was uh, 2014. Where is it available? World Scientific and Amazon. I'm going to have to get a copy of that book. I'm afraid it's quite expensive. I uh, had put together an introduction, which people will have already heard at this point, and uh, you reviewed it and you said that you liked it, but there were a couple of things that I didn't quite get right. So I thought that might be a good place to start. What am I not quite getting right? Right. Okay. Well, at, at one point you say that um, some galaxy rotation curves cannot be predicted by, by dark matter, but that's, that's strictly not quite correct because dark matter is so adjustable. You can, you can adjust it in any way you want. So you could, you could predict any galaxy rotation curve you, you want with it. Although, given there's an adjustable parameter, it's not really technically a prediction, right? Yes, that that's right. I mean, I'm I'm trying to. Uh, it's it's not actually an advantage of dark matter that that can happen. It's it's a disadvantage because it means it's not testable. Right, and so that sort of flies in the face of uh, of scientific method, I guess you could say. Yes, it's it's almost the opposite of the scientific method. Because you're not you're not predicting with dark matter the galaxy rotation at all. You can't. What you have to do is look at the mass, look at the the observed rotation, and then predict the dark matter that's needed to make the two fit together in the theory. Um, but of course, the predicting dark matter you make can never be tested because we can't we can't see it. So how did we get to the point in in the scientific world where such anti scientific ideas have taken such hold? You know, what what accounts for this abandoning of some of the fundamental principles of the scientific method? Well, yes, I, in a sense, that's a very it's a very crucial question, a very big question, more to do with psychology, I think, than anything else. I mean, general relativity was um, well accepted in the 1920s after Eddington and his observation of the bending of light by the sun, and it was assumed to be correct until. Uh, galaxy rotations in the, the 1970s showed that something was amiss and that they weren't rotating as they should have been. And at that point, they should have they should have done some thinking. But hmm. it, it seems that physics got out of the uh, the habit of thinking around about the 1940s when they were building atom bombs. <laughs> that, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. 
So uh, around the development of the atom bomb, uh, it, it does kind of make sense that with something that destructive, there would be some, well, confusion perhaps at best as to what exactly it is that we're doing in the scientific uh, exploration. And perhaps uh, a number of things happened that were more intentional, where there was a great deal of concern about the development of ideas and perhaps there is a a divergence within science where some of the things that people are encouraged to work on really don't necessarily make a lot of sense to keep a lot of people busy yes. because there's a fear that we might end up with uh, something even more potentially dangerous. I, there's a I don't know if you're familiar with Eric Weinstein, but he has this uh, phrase that he uses, the dual nuclei revolutions, the atom and the cell, and that the consequences of uh, having kind of broken into both of these things open up Pandora's box. And there's a, a wide range of potential hazards that have resulted as a consequence of these things. And so the need to sort of get some kind of a grip on that and control it may be part of the story here. Oh, I see. Yes, I hadn't really thought about, about it in that way. What I've tended to focus on, well, in my opinion, is that there are financial incentives as well for, for dark matter over alternative solutions. Because physics since the 1940s has always been very interested in building larger and larger accelerators and detectors because it brings in a lot of money to university departments. Whereas solutions on a piece of paper, for example, uh, such as I'm suggesting, don't initially bring in huge amounts of funding. So I think in science and physics, there's a, a huge tendency to, to choose the most expensive solution, which is sort of a, in opposition to Occam's razor. Huh. Yeah, that's, uh, that's particularly tragic, given the economic realities going on in the world right now that so much resource would be spent on things which are of, well, dubious scientific value, I guess you could say. And I'm not sure exactly what your take is on particle accelerators in general, but it has always struck me as a little bit odd that we would try to understand how nature works by smashing things together at as high energies as we can imagine. It seems like uh, trying to understand how a clock works by throwing it against the wall. Yes. Um but there are huge profits and people tend to be promoted in universities based on how much funding they bring in. So it could be partly due to that. And it always amuses me that people get so excited about uh, results at CERN. I mean, CERN is okay. Um, they do other things as well than look for dark matter, but they get so excited about three Sigma results at CERN. Whereas when they look, when you look into the night sky, you see galaxies rotating 10 times as fast as they should be. And this kind of anomaly is completely ignored. And, and it's an, an observation that can be made relatively simply without the incredibly complicated machinery required in these particle accelerators, which are you know, yeah. continually requiring adjustment. And there's so much data. And then there's a, a fair amount of massaging of that data. And there's good data and bad data. It just seems like an incredibly complex undertaking and then to try to figure out what the relevant data is that you get out of these experiments is a task in itself and uh it 
I don't know. It seems that keeping it simple would make sense if we're really interested in pursuing the truth. But again, I guess that's really the question is whether or not that's something that the scientific community is still interested in, in the aggregate, or at least in the mainstream. Yes. Well, I mean, it does seem to me that they're, they're funded to, to look, but never to find. <laughs> um. uh, that makes sense. So then that would be a, a wild goose chase, I guess we would call it. Yes, that's right. Um, and in, in essence, that just becomes entertainments. I'm, I'm probably going to get into a lot of trouble for saying that. And I, I should say that of, of all these things I'm saying, I have no proof. It's just my, my impression. Right. Well, I guess there's, uh, you know, we're only uh, able to really come to the conclusions that we come to. We have a certain amount of information and we see certain patterns and we come to conclusions based on our experience. But there is always that outside chance that something else is happening. Uh, maybe it's not an outside chance. It's probably mostly the case that we don't have a completely accurate picture of what's going on, which actually is one of the things that I was wondering. Um, do you think that it's possible for human intelligence or, or any intelligence, for that matter, to truly understand this universe? Or are we in a situation where all the models that we come up will necessarily be incomplete reductions of what's actually going on. Yeah, they, they will, in my opinion, they will necessarily be incomplete always, because imagine you, you develop more and more complex and accurate models, physics models of, of the cosmos. In, in doing that, you gain more and more control over the cosmos. And so in, in the limit, you would, you would start to influence it. And so you'd have to develop a model that would predict yourself. So it, <laughs> right. it, it's impossible. <laughs> it's fundamentally impossible to do it. So in essence, as we try to understand this phenomena that we're presented with, we're continually modifying it. And so there's no way to really get a grip on it. Yeah. Yes, and the better we get, the more we become the thing we're trying to predict. So in some respects, the better we get at it, the worse the situation becomes because mm. we're more likely to be able to. Uh, I always think about uh, something that happened within the financial world where there were a number of hedge funds that got extremely good at managing their market portfolios. And as a consequence, the market started to behave differently than they'd anticipated. And they got themselves into an awful lot of trouble yes. and almost destroyed the market. That's the same thing, I think it was uh, long-term capital management was the name of that firm. So that's a perfect, like, kind of small, relatively small when it's compared to the universe example of the of the of the situation that we come to. And so then the question, I guess, is well, why are we trying to get control over this thing if all we do is end up sort of messing it up even more? Well, yes, that's a big big question. Um, I mean, in in a sense, you could say that we're being we're being creative. Maybe we've been put here to to affect affect the universe, and maybe all, all our all our efforts over thousands of years will simply make some cosmic being turn left instead of right. But it's at least at least something. Hmm. I mean, it may also be that we've gotten ourselves into this pickle through a variety of of efforts in the past to understand things, and each time there are a variety of unexpected consequences that come out as a result of that, and so we're ever more incentivized to try to resolve the issues that we're confronted with because we kind of keep getting ourselves into more of a pickle. 
Uh, yes, that's that's right. I mean, I suppose you could say that technology, if we if we ever stopped, it might be quite lethal. <laughs> if we ever stopped developing, I mean, we have nuclear power now. We, yeah. It's best that we move on to something safer. If we ever stop discovering things, maybe that's when we should be uh, concerned. So we're sort of locked into this uh, dangerous game. Yes. <laughs> hmm. Well, when we had uh, first discussed the um, possibility of doing this show, you said, well, what would you like to talk about? Quantized inertia, scientific heretics, or prison planet, I believe was the other term. Oh, yes. And it occurred to me that, that those three things kind of tell a story in and of themselves, that you could think of quantized inertia as being this pure form of the search for truth and understanding. And your story is that you're doing so in the face of, we could call it institutional inertia, perhaps, and that all of this is happening now within the context of a kind of encroaching totalitarianism, which is something that I know is, is also a concern of yours, a concern that we both share. Uh, you have a, I would say, political dimension to yourself as, as well as a scientific dimension. That seems to be a pretty big story to be involved in. Truth becomes very unpopular in times of authoritarianism. And yet, like we just identified, it's really necessary for us to come to deeper understanding in order to further this thing. Otherwise, we are left with, let's say, uh, undeveloped nuclear power that is just as dangerous as it always was and without making these fourth generation improvements that might actually uh, make it a far safer and more efficient type of technology. So that seems to be the battle that you're engaged in. Well, uh, yes, it is a search for, for truth, um, but there's also another consequence that quantized notion may have in that it might, might help to get us off, off the planet. So that, that's sort of in the back of my mind. I, I think the problem is that the world is becoming too connected. People are, are talking about a world government. And although it can lead to peace, that kind of thing, I, I think it's, it's bad in a sense because it means that everybody has to have the same ideology. We're being forced to adopt the same ideology. And whether or not it's a correct ideology, I, I don't think that's healthy. Um, I have a sort of character that I prefer to um, uh, believe in what I want to believe in instead of what everybody else does. And that's becoming more difficult. So it seems to me that the technological solution is simply to release mankind from the planet huh. by inventing uh, new technologies. Do you think that's the only option? Do you think that in order for free thinkers to maintain their autonomy, we have to leave this planet? Uh well, it sounds terrible, doesn't it? But yes, yes, I think so. Uh, wow. Because our, our technology has simply become too big for the planet. We, we, can, we can destroy it um, with, with nuclear technology. Um, so we have to increase our range so we, we don't blow ourselves up. And, and does that also suggest the reason why there has to be a kind of conformity within, within ideology that there needs to be a kind of lockstep control over the population so that we avoid doing the potentially destructive things that we've done in the past, kind of letting the demons loose, if you like? I suppose that's one way to do it, that you, you make sure everybody is, is on the same page so they don't argue and argue in a nuclear fashion. 
but, but I, I don't think that's a healthy, I think that's a way down into stagnation. And I'd like to see something like the, the Pilgrim Fathers who went to America because they couldn't practice their beliefs in the UK. Mm. I'd like to see something like that happen to all the different cultures on the planet. Uh, you know, they, they leave. And, and find uh, planets elsewhere, I guess, is what you're referring to. Yes, a place where they can they can try out their method of, of life, and then the most effective method will spread the the fastest. And, and of course, there's there's really no room on planet Earth for that anymore. We don't. I mean, I suppose you know you might have some of the least inhabitable zones of the planet, the the stretches of desert and the stretches of tundra and maybe deep sea left. I know that there have been some discussions about creating these floating islands of civilizations that might live out in the open seas and but beyond that we're kind of running out of room here yes but i think my point is that they they could be got to no matter where they are on the planet they you know if the united nations decides that their ideology is not um, the the global one they could be um uh, they could be destroyed I didn't quite follow the last uh, that last thought. So, if we can't really escape from uh, this this global uh, force a- anymore, because no matter where you are on the planet, you can be uh, you can be found. Right, and so even the effort to begin something along those lines would be terminated before it had a chance to develop. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Yes, I don't think it's as bad as that now, but I think that's the way it's going. It seems to be going. So. Well, it does seem like anything of any uh, significance is noticed by the powers that be relatively quickly. And uh, if they don't approve of it, it really doesn't stand much of a chance of, of getting going. Yeah, that's right. Although, you know, right now there's clearly a battle over what this world order is going to be. Yeah, it seemed that in the past there was a kind of Western hegemon that had the upper hand, and that clearly is no longer the case. China clearly is becoming a dominant force, which may or may not be something that becomes integrated with the West. And then you have things like Russia, which are nuclear powers that really don't seem to want to play ball uh, in the way that the major powers want them to. So, and, you know, Iran, I guess, would be folded into that as well. So the extent to which they're ever going to be able to actually realize globalist ambition is still, I think, uncertain, let's say. Yes, that's that's true. We seem to be splitting into two camps at the moment, sort of. Um, it's very Orwellian, isn't it, with um, uh, Eurasia and um, the uh, the Atlantic states. Yeah, although it's kind of confusing because there does seem to be a fair amount of mixed signals from the West with respect to China. So there is, at the same time, a lot of criticism and resistance, and then there seems to be a lot of concession and a willingness to go along in some way or another, or even integrate. You know, So the technology, I think, is one of the ways in which China has worked its way and also, of course, through the through the economy, they've had incredible success at that. We we depend on them to make a lot of a lot of things. Oh boy, yeah, it's uh, it's incredible the extent to which we become dependent upon them and some of the other resource rich, labor cheap type of nations out there. But it's I, I think unclear, you know, whether or not the globalist ambitions will be realized. 
on the other hand, it seems that the consequences of it turning into a real battle are more than anyone would want to bear. So it does seem like the trend is going to continue to be towards some kind of global system, as uncomfortable as that might be. I, I wonder if you've read a book by um, uh, Strauss and Howe, um, uh, The Fourth Turning. The Fourth Turning? I haven't read it, but I'm familiar with some of the ideas. Yes, I mean, that's that's extremely interesting. I mean, the, the idea there is that there, there is a major war and then people, because of that, sort of wise up and cooperate for a while. And then they, they start to individualize, which is the 1960s. That becomes selfish, which is the 1980s. Then society kind of starts to fall apart, which is maybe the 2000s. And then people feel the need to regroup and they try to find groups but these groups necessarily argue. And so also because the people who experienced the war die off, um, this results in a, a terrible war again. Um, so the prediction of that is that every 80 years you get some kind of major, major conflict, um, uh, which, uh, which doesn't sound too good. <laughs> no, yeah, particularly because each war has ever more destructive technology brought to bear. And so I think Einstein said that, you know, the next war after the war after the next war would be fought with sticks and stones. So I think everyone is still well, it's hard to say, like, I, I know that you and I are aware that if there were a true unrestrained conflict in the world right now, it would be horrible beyond belief. I'm not sure that everyone really understands that still, but it does seem that there should be some awareness that this one will be maybe something we can't quite come back from. Yeah, people seem to have forgotten that a little bit. It does seem like it, yeah. And I guess in some ways that might explain the uh, effort at totalitarianism to try to put a, a lid on what might get really out of control. You would need to basically have information about every single human being on the planet. And that's certainly what they've designed as a system of being able to keep track of all of us. So uh, within that context, it starts to make sense. Uh, yes, but I, I still regard it as a, a very unhealthy uh, way way to go about things. Yeah. So hence, hence going into space. Right. <laughs> so then the question is, well, in terms of the planets uh, immediately available to us and uh, our local area, none of them seem particularly hospitable. Yes. I know that Elon has plans to uh, to take a shot at at Venus, or is it Mars? Mars, yeah. It's Mars. Uh, Venus would be impossible. Venus is a possibility to live in the clouds of, of Venus. Huh, okay. About 10 kilometers. I guess you'd have plenty of energy to work with, but um, it does seem that it would be a pretty harsh environment to try to make a go of it. And of course, what happens to a species is very much dependent upon its environment. So it seems that we really should expect human beings to become something quite different if we start to live in, in such alien environments. Yes. And it's unclear what exactly we would become. That would be, I think, a very uncomfortable process. Well, we we would be able to genetically modify ourselves to model on uh, to live on uh, to model to live on Mars or, or Venus. I, I don't see see why we wouldn't. We wouldn't hmm. You mean prior to getting there? Well, 
Yes, or, or maybe... So we, we would genetically meet ourselves for the trip? Possibly the incentive would be when you're, you're living on a planet and you, you get a bit fed up. So genetic engineering would, um, would take off and they would, uh, uh, they would modify themselves. Interesting. So there would be that and then whatever natural kind of modifications would occur as a result of living in this new environment. Yes, but I guess the human modifications would be far quicker. Um, it could be done within one generation. Um, I, I don't see why that couldn't be done. Do you think that uh, that species have traveled interplanetary in the past? Is this something that has happened before or elsewhere? Well, uh, according to the theory I've suggested, quantized inertia, um, there should be a kind of thrust that doesn't require propellant um, because the difficulty with us going to the next star system is that you need to get, to do it in a human lifetime, you have to go very fast, close to the speed of light. And to get that fast, you have to carry a lot of fuel. And it turns out the amount of fuel you need is about a minor planet. It's about the mass of a minor planet. But if you could have a kind of thrust that doesn't require fuel and just uses energy, electricity, uh, you could you could do it. You could get to the nearest star system in the human lifetime in say twenty years, and quantized inertia predicts that kind of thrust. So, am I understanding correctly that you could leverage the uh, quantum fluctuations in order to use that? You could basically use that as the as the propulsion. Yes. Uh, once you're in free space, but you would need some kind of quantum energy generator in order to reach escape orbit and free yourself from a gravitational field. Is that correct? Uh, escaping from the gravitational field of the Earth is a little bit more difficult, um, but we can do that with rockets already. So, And it may be possible with quantized inertia as well to, to launch things into space. And as you may know, I've, I've won some DARPA funding to, to try and demonstrate that that is the case. Yes, I forgot to mention at the beginning that, that you are the only guest on this program to have received DARPA funding, and that is a, a, a real distinction. That is quite exciting, and, you know, is there something, I know there are some things probably you can't tell us about what's been going on with that, but what can you tell us about that research? Well, DARPA have been very, uh, very good. They allowed me to, to say anything about it. It's for the good of mankind, so it's, it's all open access. Um, the difficulty is the labs that I've employed to do the work um, in that they are, have given me certain restrictions about what I can say. So I could say that there's good news and bad news in that one, one particular pathway that we were investigating uh, looks less likely, but another pathway looks very positive. And that's, that's a pathway using uh, capacitors, actually. Is that, if I remember correctly, I think in one of the papers uh, I was looking at that I did not quite understand, uh, there was one that had to do with the shape of the cavity, another one had to do with uh, there being a dielectric applied to part of the cavity. Is that kind of what we're talking about? Yes. Um, so this capacitor approach, uh, the positive one, uh, it has a dielectric inside the capacitor, and electrons are accelerated within the capacitor from the cathode to the anode extremely fast about the acceleration is about 10 to the 19 meters per second per second and because because they're moving into the space between the capacitor plates they see a particular gradient in the quantum vacuum 
that's predicted by this is predicted by quantized measure. And this means that they uh, receive an extra boost from the quantum vacuum that they wouldn't normally have. In a particular sense, their inertial mass reverses. So it becomes a negative inertial mass in, in the theory. Huh. So this means the capacitor moves in a new way. And this scales really well. I mean, we get um, 100 newtons per kilowatt. So a newton obviously is a, a unit of force and kilowatt is power. Um, so this, if we can confirm this, this means if you strap a battery to it, a very good battery, you could, you could lift off huh. with this, this truss. So that's good news. That's, that's incredible. It's, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, the idea of being able to leverage the energy that's freely available throughout all of space and put it to work without having the destructive impact on, on the natural world. Yeah. I mean, there would still be some, you know, some kind of a generator necessary in order to produce this initial electrical force. Yes, you could use solar power. You could use solar power potentially, right. Something sustainable. Right. And when it comes to a larger craft, you'd have plenty of surface area to have those types of panels. Yes. Uh, you could use an RTG, a radiothermal generator, so using radioact radioactive decay uh, to power it, for example. I think I read somewhere that you were using lasers at one point to excite uh, the cavities. Is that correct? Yes. So uh, this is the, the pathway we went down that, that hasn't worked, apparently. We're not quite sure about that, but it, that's a less less successful the tests have not been successful so far with that one. I had sent you that article. I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at it, but it's um, it's about an experiment that was done where they split a laser into two weaker beams and achieved a rather substantial energy boost as a result. Oh, yeah. yes. It's something that I've been interested in. Yes, I had a look. Yeah, it seems that uh, it might be possible to really leverage. I mean, part of what I wonder is, well, what accounts for that boost? And, you know, on a gut level, I would I would say, well, it's got to have something to do with quantized inertia. It's got to have something to do with the, the zero-point energy. So my, my gut instinct, without having uh, a lot of reason behind it, is that it might be possible to derive a lot of energy from a uh, zero point if you have the correct balance of forces applied to it. And it suggests, you know, because you have these two weaker beams that are focused at one point in space. I mean, they're focused on a, in this case, a, uh, a, a metal foil of some sort or another, but it, it could just as easily be focusing on a point in space that it might be possible to if you have the right geometry to coax a, well, sort of the, the natural way of producing energy out of any given point in space. Yes. I, I know. Somewhat far-fetched, yeah. perhaps. Uh, well, But it seems that it might be worth experimenting with. Yeah, I think you're on interesting lines with that. Um, what the theory seems to be showing is that whenever you have a lot of energy confined within a very small space, you can get a little bit extra out, which is very similar to your, your two lasers. 
I think they've noticed that with the Sapphire experiments too. I don't know if you're keeping track of what they're doing, although they've kind of gone dark a little bit. Yes, it's not the electric universe. Yeah, so they they've uh, discovered that at certain at certain energy levels, they start to produce more energy than they're feeding into the system. That and apparently they're they're also creating a large number of of chemical elements in the chamber. Oh, transmutation. That's interesting. Yeah. There's some interesting things going on there. Yeah. I'll make a note to have a look. Yeah, Sapphire and um, I think Michael Michael Claridge, I think, is the guy who's running that that project. He's given a number of presentations that are pretty interesting. I, I did with the paper suggesting that if, if you could design a, a material that's engineered on a nanoscale with cavities on a nanoscale, then it should thrust by itself. Hmm. Um, Interesting. You wouldn't need any input power. So you could have a material that, um, that just sort of floats or thrusts upwards without any input power, just floating on a quantum vacuum like a sail on the wind. And so it would be very much dependent upon the geometry of those nanoparticles that, that in some way or another they would be capturing yes. the activity of the quantum foam, if you like. Yes, that's right. What's your favorite term for the? Because I've heard it referred to in in a number of different ways. The quantum, you know, the quantum uh, vacuum energy, uh, quantum fluctuations, quantum foam, zero point energy. I mean, in some some level, I guess that's also what's meant by dark energy. Is that correct, or is that a completely different thing? That's a different thing. That's something they have to add in arbitrarily to the the cosmological model. Um, yeah, so I, I prefer zero point field. In, in 1913, they, they proved it must exist. In, in 1913, using um, uh, temperatures of liquid helium, I think. Huh. How, do, how does that work? Oh, well, they, uh, they simply modeled the, the specific heat content of, I think it was liquid helium, at very low temperatures. And they found that it, was, it behaved very unusually. And the only way they could explain it was if... Um, objects cannot lose a certain proportion of their energy, which they then attributed to what they called the zero-point field. Interesting. Null-punkt uh, felt in German, I think, something like that. And, and I guess that would also have been uh, verified by the Casimir effect. In 1996, that was verified by the Casimir effect. One of the things that quantized inertia does is it really throws a number of major ideas within the cosmological world into question, or at least you can't really maintain dark matter or dark energy in the face of quantized inertia. I think it's also fair to say that quantized inertia is a new model of gravity and that uh, the idea of of uh, the curvature of space-time, which was Einstein's solution for a gravitational model, is also pretty much chucked out. So those are some huge holy cows, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, sorry about that. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's quite understandable that there would be a, a fair degree of resistance uh, when it comes to... Uh, adopting these new ideas. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how the scientific community has reacted to what you're doing and any insights you may have into how you're negotiating 
these issues because they're they're pretty substantial. Yes. Yeah, so when I when I first started back in uh, 2007, publishing on on quantized measure, I don't think the scientific community really knew what was going on, and they let my papers appear quite easily. But I think uh, I think they realised around about 2012 that I was challenging the whole thing. Well, not the whole thing, but uh, a lot of a lot of the, the newer things. And so they, they started banning my papers from the archive, for example, which is a preprint system physicists use, even though I published them in, in peer-reviewed journals, the papers were not allowed to appear, uh, some of them. And I, I got a lot of stick online for, for it, but most of that went away when I got the DARPA funding, which is interesting, sort of hmm. uh, 2017. After that, I've had virtually no criticism. Wow. So that's an interesting situation to be in. And uh, in, in essence, you've silenced the critics. Yes. And I'm trying to engage with the physics community in a, in a friendly manner, using sort of friendly persuasion, and, and trying to gently suggest to them that bent space is not, is not a good hypothesis because you, you can never directly test it. Uh, you, you can't actually see the metric of space. And there's no way we could think of testing for it. M my alternative involves a gradient in the quantum vacuum, um, which can be tested because you could just test the Casimir effect, for example, in different locations of space. So you can see this happening. Brilliant. So in my opinion, it's a much better way. And it's, it's not that I'm against Einstein at all. Um, Einstein actually published a theory in 1911, a precursor to general relativity, where he didn't use bent space, and he used something that looks a little bit like the zero-point field. Huh. He actually gave space a refractive index. So in a sense, I'm, I'm trying to push back to that 1911 version of general relativity and then build from that. I think if I remember correctly, I've heard it said that Einstein wasn't fully satisfied with the model of, uh, of bent space-time, that he recognized that it was an ad hoc assumption and that there was no way to test it. So it's very similar in many respects to dark matter in that respect. It's, it's a fanciful notion that you can use to explain things if you want. It, it, it can produce results that are commensurate with observation, but it really there's no way of proving that it has anything to do with actually what's going on in reality. Yes, and, and of course, it's never, general relativity has never ever predicted any galaxy rotation. We, we see hundreds of galaxies, we, we measure their rotation, and it's never predicted anyone correctly, which should have made them pause in 1970. Um, that, that should have shocked them. Right. And, and they should have considered, you know, improving general relativity or thinking again. But they... Well, th this is the thing about... Uh developing a holy cow, the, the, uh, the enfranchisement of a, of a concept and gilding it in such uh, uh, absolute terms. You know, Einstein was basically like the first rock star in a certain sense. And so he could do no wrong. And it's a terrible burden on the scientific world that every time you have an edifice that can't be questioned, you're basically doing a disservice to the project in general. So it seems like what's needed is really a more elegant way, maybe even somewhat of a of a systematized way of going about overturning old ideas. 
and that <laughs> everyone in, it, it should be kind of a part of the discussion is you know how do we move forward and and elegantly and gently and i really like the fact that you said uh, that you were trying to gently uh, influence the mainstream because i i know that many people who are uh, let's say in the uh, scientific heretic category are not so gentle. And when I first discovered the Electric Universe crew, I was somewhat dismayed at the amount of energy they poured into viciously attacking the the mainstream. And I actually sent them a number of emails saying, "I think this is a terrible strategy. You know, it really doesn't make sense on any level." The only way to do it is, well, it generally takes decades, really, to to persuade people. Yeah. But um, you have to have patience. Yeah. The, the, what is it? The uh, Thomas Kuhn, I think, says something along the lines of, you know, sci scientific progress happens one coffin at a time, something along those lines. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, that's probably quite brutal, but, um, but I can see that slowly people are, are starting to, uh, to listen. And, and I'm, I'm willing to admit, you know, that the quantized inertia is not yet perfect. It's not a perfect system yet. And I need physicists with more mathematical skill than me to, uh, to help, uh, really. So I'm, I'm calling for help, in a sense. What, uh, what needs to be uh, resolved for quantized inertia to uh, fit the bill, let's say? So... I'm working on it at the moment. What I need to prove is that it predicts everything that general relativity does. Um, so there are several successful tests of general relativity, which are all in the solar system. So the bending of light by the sun, the Shapiro time delay of light by the sun, um, the perihelion of precession of mercury, things like that. I've just, I've just submitted a paper proving that quantized inertia does predict the correct light bending by the sun. Uh, which is good, uh, but I could do with some help uh, with the others um, because there are a lot of tests that have been done, and I need to slowly go through them and um, and reproduce them. I I saw that that was something. I think that was your most recent blog post about that. Are you finding that there are some uh, within the profession who are interested in joining the team? Yes, yes. I'm now liaising with about eighteen different groups. Around, around the globe. Wow, that's wonderful. Yes, it is. They're, they're really great people. Um, about half of them are experimentalists and about half are theorists. So I'm, I'm talking to them. That's excellent. So uh, one of the, th there's a set of issues that come up that's maybe a little difficult to express, but let me see if I can uh, articulate it correctly. Like one of the things that strikes me as being perhaps another way in which the scientific community might have some resistance to quantized inertia is that typically in the past, the, the focus in physics has been on kind of a billiard board model, billiard ball model, where it's objects, you know, objects moving in space. Yes, exactly. And this is really, uh, quantized inertia is talking about the field. It's talking about dynamics within the quantum field that you might say are a medium within which objects are uh, situated. So it starts to have a little flavor of what we might call the ether. 
Uh, yes, that's true, but not quite. Because <clears throat> um, uh, it's not really the ether that was eliminated by, by Einstein in 1905, because it's, it depends on acceleration. Uh, the, the particular manifestation of the zero-point field I'm using is called Unruh radiation, and it only exists for objects that are accelerating relative to other objects. So you can imagine a, an object accelerating and an object next to it would see no field, but the accelerating object would see a field in the surrounding space. So depending on your acceleration, you have a different perception of the zero-point field, which is a very peculiar thing. So is the UNRWA radiation an artifact of the interaction of an accelerating object and the zero-point field? It's, it's a con... What quantized inertia does is it combines relativity and quantum mechanics very tightly. So quantum mechanics produces this field, but special relativity produces a horizon that cuts the field and separates pairs of virtual particles so that they can become real. So it requires both sides of physics, if you like, and in a, in a sense, it, com it, um, it unifies, unifies them. So am I understanding correctly that in quantized inertia, we're dealing with what might be called three fundamental horizons, which are, in essence, each one is a barrier. And so the one that you're describing is, is called the Rindler horizon, if I have that correctly. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, and that's produced by an accelerating object. Yes. It's in the wake of the accelerating object, you might say. Yes, that's right. Although it doesn't really depend on velocity, it depends on acceleration. But if you apply it to acceleration, it's it's in a direction opposite to the acceleration vector. Right. And then you have the horizon, the cosmic horizon, which is, I guess, called the Hubble diameter is another term for that. Yes. Which is also a limit that creates effects within the entire zero-point field. That's right. Dumps, dumps the field. And then we have, in essence, the, the boundary between objects, which also have, has the potential to have a dampening effect with respect to the, to the quantum field. Yes, well, you could say that the third horizon is, uh, is matter itself. Right, yeah. So uh, elementary particles produce a horizon, uh, which is where, where gravity comes from, because if you have two objects side by side, they dump the, the onward radiation so that they draw together. So is it possible that that might even account for the formation of atoms? Because, of course, the closer you have protons, you know, then you would have this aggregate energy around them and the dampening of energy between them. And so you could basically get rid of the strong force as well. Yes, that's right. Wow. Yes, I'm working on that with somebody in, in the U.S., actually, um, Stephen Verrill at the University of Wisconsin, I think. So you're you're running the risk of basically overturning every principle in physics, uh, pretty much, right down the line. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a positive motive. <laughs> right. I'm not doing it just to be a troublemaker. <laughs> well, that's why I said running the risk. You know, it's. It, I know that you're not out to cause trouble here, but of course, you know. That doesn't mean you won't cause some trouble, but it sounds like um, it sounds like you're finding an elegant way of of solving those types of problems, and and hopefully uh, the physics community can gracefully accept uh, some of these new ideas. 
Yes, um, and it would be good for them as well because it's an entire new field. It presents solutions to a lot of old problems and it could produce some, some very good technology as well that people, uh, business-type people could make money out of, I, I guess. Right. So there's your financial incentive. So maybe instead of building particle colliders, eventually people will be building quantized inertia spaceships. Yes, exactly. Yes, or, or generators, energy generators. Right. God willing, it will happen. Um, I, I have a question about light. And let me see if I can articulate it correctly. First of all, it seems that if the envelope of the universe is something which is expanding on the basis of light, then uh, we really can't say that there's any region of space that doesn't have light in it. Is that correct? So there really, like technically within the universe, there really shouldn't be any actually dark region of space. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's, that's correct. Although it depends where, you, where you're standing. Because where we're standing, for example, we can't see objects from beyond the Hubble horizon because the light hasn't had time to get to us yet. Um, but within in that envelope, that's fine. Yeah. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, the Hubble horizon is something which depends on your location within the universe to begin with. Yes, that's right. Which in essence means that we really have no idea how big the universe is. Yes. That, that's exactly right. And the theory indicates that it's not that the universe is expanding, but that simply we're receiving light from further and further regions as time goes along. That's fascinating. So when we're talking about expansion, uh, we're basically talking about the propagation of a light field. Yes. And there's no necessary like scalar change in the relationship between galaxies. Is that correct? That, that's right. So it means that the cosmos is not moving away from itself or uh, stars are not moving away from us. It's a steady state. Right. And so this gets to uh, a paper of yours that I've only uh, glanced at briefly that's entitled uh, Toy Cosmology, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. That I'd really, uh, I'm, I'm looking at a black hole. Yeah. <laughs> and so the idea of a steady state um, is something which, if I'm not mistaken, this is another thing that's had a, a fair amount of, of history to it. Prior to Hubble observing the galaxies, Einstein inserted the cosmological constant in an effort to make the universe a steady state. Uh, and he considered that to be his greatest blunder because after the observations of Hubble, he recognized that at the time they thought it wasn't necessary. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that whole process of thought and how, how you've returned back to a steady state model. Uh, yes, so the, the observation of uh, redshift is, is the crucial thing. It seems that stars further away from us are redshifted, which looks very much like a Doppler shift, and it looks very much like they're moving away from us. But recently, it's been found by, by Halton Arp, who's, who's dead now, unfortunately, but he found that some objects connected to close-by galaxies also have a high redshift. And these are things that also appear to have been fired out of the galactic centers of these things. It's almost like it's new matter. So I've applied quantized inertia to this, and the theory seems to suggest that, that new matter has an intrinsic high redshift because it has less inertial mass. So the electrons going around the nucleus have less inertial mass. Wow. So this explains 
why distant objects are redshifted, not because they're moving away, in my opinion, but because they're, um, we're seeing them as they existed many aeons ago. Fascinating. So what does the idea of new matter do to conservation of energy? Uh, yes, well, that's a crucial question. But what what is essential for the theory is that uh, energy and matter are not conserved, but that energy, mass, and information are conserved. So I'm bringing in a new element, if you like, or a new component, which is information. And I've, I've just published a paper on this as well, deriving the theory from information. It turns out that if you, for example, delete the memory of a, a, a computer, you're reducing the entropy of the memory. Uh, because instead of having a lot of ones and zeros in it, it's now got all, say, zeros. So the entropy of the system has gone down, and that can't be allowed because of the second law of thermodynamics. So Landauer's principle was invented to say that whenever you destroy some information, it releases heat. And so I managed to show that the theory uh, can, be, can be derived this way. If you imagine something that starts to accelerate, it sees suddenly a horizon, and this cuts off part of hmm. the universe from it, this horizon is. Uh, it makes it impossible for it to know what's behind the horizon. So this is a deletion of information, and it releases energy. And when you calculate the amount of energy that it releases, it's exactly what's needed for inertial mass. That I'm going to have to uh, I'm going to have to replay that section several times in order to really understand it. But uh, I feel like I just heard something of incredible significance that I can't quite get my mind around. So it all fits together is what I'm trying to say. If you if you include information in, in physics. So information might be thought of as the functional component of an arrangement of matter. Is that kind of a, a reasonable way of thinking of it? I, su I suppose it's the the amount of information you would require to describe a bunch of a bunch of matter. Well, the, uh, so there's the description is is something that we apply to things, right? But then the arrangement of things themselves is what they are. So uh, it seems to me that the that information would be something that would be held within consciousness, that it would be in essence an artifact of the mind, but that in the physical world there would be an actual arrangement of of matter in a particular way, such as let's say the 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 particular states of bits in a computer that represent functionality, represent some kind of, let's say, code or behavior. Yeah. It's the rending of that uh, matrix, whatever that arrangement is, that is the destruction of information. Yes, but I wouldn't say it's anything to do with the human mind. You, you could say it's information required to describe it that is objective and doesn't rely on interpretation by by human mind so uh, so something that everybody could see if they were uh, they were told about it but it would have to be told they would have to be told about it in order to see it so uh, what is your take on the the role of consciousness in in all of this like do you see consciousness as playing a significant factor when it comes to the functionality of the universe well I should say I haven't thought much about, about consciousness because, um, well, I suppose in physics we're not, we're not trained to think about that, but it, quantized inertia does move physics towards that kind of thinking. 
because obviously it brings information into the um, into the picture. So in a sense, that's, that's all I can say about that. I, I wouldn't like to speculate about what it means. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to get back to you on that one. Well, let's see. Very yeah, I mean that's that's been one of my main interests as a, as a philosophically minded person who has, I think maybe uh, a bit too broad of a set of interests, but much of it has to do with that kind of interface between consciousness and and phenomena, if you like. That's that's sort of the center of my thinking. My gut instinct is that there's got to be a term that in some way or another relates to consciousness in in physics. And light seems to be a good candidate, but so, so here's another question. I think that you had mentioned that as the Hubble diameter expands, you get a, let's say longer wavelength. That's the minimal possible acceleration. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so is it possible that it's also the case that there's a, variation at the top end of the spectrum that light like the light speed value c i've heard some say is variable even within the so-called vacuum and of course now when we speak of light moving in a vacuum we're really not talking about a vacuum because the vacuum of space is not a vacuum it's uh, bubbling with quantum energy yeah and so is it possible first of all that light requires this medium or is it also because there is in essence no dark region of space that light in some way or another plays a role in the formation of this quantum energy uh and is it possible that the the speed the overall uh metric of the value c is something which might vary over time one way or the other and would it be related potentially to the uh hubble diameter well, yes, the first part of the question I'm unable to answer yet. The question about whether the speed of light changes, in the theory it does change, and that's how I, I've just modelled the bending of light by the sun, for example. This is done in general relativity by bending space and allowing light to track along the grain of space, in a sense. But I've done it by changing the speed of light. So in a way, it's similar to the solution to the uh, galactic rotation. And instead of changing mass, you're changing the inertia, in essence. Yes, that, that's right. So this, this also implies, although I haven't worked out the consequences yet, that as the cosmos expands, the speed of light will, will indeed change. Uh, in which direction? Well, it's a difficult question because there are several things that are changing. I've, I've managed to show that a g m over r should be equal to c squared. So it's the gravitational force? Uh, the gravitational constant uh, times the visible mass, m, over the radius of the cosmos is equal to the speed of light squared. Huh. So as r changes, as the cosmos expands, you have to have changes in the other parameters. But at the moment, I just do not know which which ones are changing and how to decide <laughs> it's it's a problem what is the meaning of the gravitational constant in the context of quantized inertia oh can i just say that my my video always freezes after one hour oh okay well um, yes as a matter of fact i see that you're frozen <laughs> yes so could i actually log out and come back of course because i'm frozen in an extremely embarrassing uh, position. 
<laughs> okay, yeah. Um, I just have to reboot my computer, so I will be back in about a minute. Hi there. Hello. <laughs> Welcome back. Yeah, sorry about that. It always, always happens. Oh, the computers are a nonstop hassle. It's just the world we're in. But they do make They're amazing. What would we do without them? But they're infuriating. Well, I have to go fairly soon, by the way, because my wife is cooking dinner. Okay. Um, what are you having for dinner? It smells like something to do with tuna. So I'm, I'm not sure, but um, maybe tuna. <laughs> I, there's all kinds of different things that we could go to, but in some sense, I think we've had a relatively thorough conversation. I don't know if at any point in the future you might be interested in in uh, doing a follow-up. Yeah, sure. I found it very, very pleasant. So, yeah, sure. Oh, wonderful. That, that's absolutely wonderful. So I, I do have a one thing that um, I'm curious to ask you about. I'm, I'm interested in many different things. And so one of the guys that I listen to from time to time talks about his proof that that light is, in essence, a propagation through a medium, let's say, has to do with what happens when light passes through glass. So his claim is that when light hits glass, it slows down. But when it goes to the uh, leaves the glass, it then yeah. resumes the light speed, let's say. And so that would be a violation of of conservation of energy yes. if it were a particle. But if you thought of it as induction and the glass is a resistor, well then then you would basically be preserving the the laws of nature if you like the laws of physics and 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 have a plausible uh picture of what's going on so i'm curious as to what your thoughts are on that well in in standard physics it is similar to that i mean the reason that light slows down is because um it starts to interact with the electrons and the atoms in a, in a material and all the charges in the atoms uh, which which slows it down um and when it leaves to the vacuum, I guess you could say that the reason it doesn't have infinite speed is because it's interacting with the uh, the quantum vacuum. Although I'm not sure that whether that would be um, uh, the standard view of, of it. But yeah, I, I I like the idea. Well, I guess the idea is that if we're going to think of it as a if we're going to think of it as a particle, then you know each photon would, in theory, have lost some energy during its interaction with the material in the glass. Uh, and that would explain. So, how would it then regain that energy upon leaving the glass? Well, I think the uh, the way they do it is they they turn it into a a, a quasi particle within the uh, within the object. So, although it's slowed down, it's more massive, and so the energy stays the same. But but I th I think your friend is on a good track because there's a uh, so-called Abraham Minkowski paradox about about light and at the moment physics cannot predict the momentum of light within a material um, th there are two answers basically and, and nobody knows which which is correct hmm. uh, I'm just trying to remember the way the way it goes but one of them predicts that momentum goes down with a within a, a material and the other one predicts that it goes goes up huh and experiments seem to show both are true. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't, 
<laughs> I encourage your friend to, to work on that because there has to be some answer somewhere. Well, he's not a friend of mine. He's someone who I who I follow from time to time. He's a, a kind of a, um, I'm not sure how to describe it. He's definitely a, a heretic, without a doubt. His name is Ken Wheeler. I don't know if you've heard about him. He wrote a book called uh, Uncovering the Missing Secrets of Magnetism. He's a very kind of... Uh, uh, yeah, he's he's a he's a problematic character, but I find him interesting. There's something both profoundly video. Yeah, he's he's made about a thousand. You know, probably I think he actually announced that he made six thousand five hundred videos, and quite often he just goes on and on about the same thing. I find his uh, explanations both interesting and very dissatisfying, but um, but nevertheless, there's something there. I guess is what I would have to say on on a gut level. I feel like there's something to, to what he's talking about. And there's a woman who goes by the name of Fractal Woman who's taken some of his ideas and I think done a far better job at explaining them and integrating them into what might be called uh, a more rigorous physics. Uh, she's someone who I think is very much worth looking into. She's uh, presently... Yeah, I'll send you a couple of uh, links and and uh, maybe a couple of specific videos that you might find interesting. Yeah, okay. uh, she's also very interested in modifying unit analysis. So she's thinking a lot about notation right now and spending a lot of time reevaluating the way things are are notated and formulated. So there's some really interesting material along those lines that I'm uh, only able to understand to a certain degree, which you might find. Uh, stimulating at the at the least, I guess you could say. Yes, please, please send me. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a few things. And it looks like I think uh, your wife just uh, popped her head in the door there to let you know that dinner was ready. <laughs> so I don't want to hold you much longer. It's been an incredible pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I look forward to future conversations. Okay, well, thanks for inviting me. And I'm okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home.